0: Turn with me to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, and I want to read to you from verses 22 through 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. As with last week, this morning, what we hope to see is that so that many more will learn of God's works and believe in Jesus, we'll see that the Father and the Son, two persons, are one essence with one purpose and will, that the Father gives sheep to the Son, and he secures them. Forever. I talked to you last week about the oneness or the unity of the Father and the Son in works. The works that are done by the Son are the works of the Father through the Son, that they would display the character of the Father, but also the oneness that the Father shares with the Son. And so I said to you that if you're going to attempt to prove the deity of Jesus Christ to someone to someone who rejects the deity of Jesus Christ. This is not the best place to start. You do see the deity of Jesus. You see oneness in that Jesus is God in this text, but that's not the primary issue. The primary issue is that in their oneness, in their deity, that God is three persons, yet one God. The works display that oneness. So the works are what Jesus calls attention to in that those who deny the person of Jesus cannot in any measure of honesty deny the works of Jesus, the works of God done through Jesus. If you do not believe that I am he, then believe in the works that I do. He says, my father who has given them to me. This is a polarizing truth. It's daunting. It's hard. It's one of the hard sayings in the Scripture. And so anyone, even a believer, and especially new believers, will hear, read, see this truth, and they'll say things like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But then they ask questions. You know, the believer will ask questions. He will want to understand this. He will not attempt to pit Scripture against Scripture by grabbing other passages of the Bible and attempting to destroy this truth that the Father gives sheep to the Son. All those who come to me, the Father has given me, and I in no way will cast them out. Those who come to the Son are those and those alone whom the Father has determined in eternity past to give to him. And so he says, my Father who has given them to me, you understand that this is the foundation of any ability to understand the rest of what he says. And so for the person who rejects that reality, the person who attempts to destroy Scripture with Scripture, the person who refuses to be moved by, humbled by the truth of the Scripture, can't possibly understand the rest of what he has to say. This is the foundation. This is the basement. This is the starting place. Being undone in our man-centered view of things, our own experiential interpretation of things. Well, my experience was this. This morning you're going to hear from two who soon will be new members of our church. You'll see them affirmed, and I'm so pleased that in their testimony they dealt specifically with what Scripture says about that transaction about reconciliation that takes place between God and man via Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And what a great joy. I mean, anytime I read someone's testimony who's been faithful to Scripture, it's, I hope you understand it is immensely moving in my soul, immensely. Sometimes I go back, I have all of your testimonies, those of you who have proclaimed the truth of what it is to know Jesus Christ and submitting to God's sovereign design to be faithful to one local church, I often go back to your testimonies and I read them. Many times it's a baptism testimony, which is that testimony. Please know that it is the faithful expression of what it means to know Jesus Christ from Scripture that keeps anybody moving. You know, our experience together should be rooted in that. What is Christian fellowship? It doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be reciting the gospel to each other, you know, every three minutes, but it's based on that, right? It's based on that. Any and every breath you take in the presence of another believer ought to be rooted in the truth of God's eternal kindness to his children. And this is expressed in Jesus' willingness to refer to the Father by saying that he who has given them to me is greater than all. Hello, right? Of course he is. In his greatness, he has determined whom he will give to the Son. Thank the Lord. He has done so for his own good, for his glory. He's greater than all. And because He's greater than all, no one can dent His grip on you if you are in Him. It's His greatness. It's His character. He is worthy. The Father is worthy. The unsurpassable, untouchable reality of the greatness, of the power, the holiness, the righteousness of God. So don't lose sight of this connectivity, the relationship between your perseverance. You might want to call it your eternal security, and really in this text, that's what he deals with. We often say the real issue is perseverance, and it is. But in this text, he deals with the security in knowing that you are going to be with him forever, spared from the stain of this world, protected, really ripped out of, plucked out of the debauchery that the world is. One day you will be fully restored unto his image. You will see him as he is and you will be like him. If, in fact, your hope is steadfastly in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the result of his greatness and his willingness to prevent anyone from ever snatching you from his hand. Can you imagine? Some of you can imagine. Some of you can imagine what it's like on a day-to-day basis to be constantly manipulated by the potential to lose your salvation because some preacher has pounded it into you. Someone has told you over and over again, if you don't perform, if you don't, tithe if you don't do all these things, then just look out, because God will remove from you what he has given to you. That's a man-made theology, and it really is the apex of Arminianism. Now, as I told you last week, the fifth point of Arminianism being the idea that you can lose your salvation. Most Arminians today do not believe that, at least the ones I've ever met. Why? Because they've evolved. They've at least given some attention to the truth of Scripture in that area. Why? I'll tell you why. Because nobody wants to live under that kind of insecurity. I don't think it's because of an immense faithfulness to Scripture. It's because, number one, you can't miss it, although they choose to miss other things intentionally. You can't miss that, but it's easy to embrace that because nobody wants to live as if you can lose your salvation. So it's not noble that there would be those who would abandon the false teaching that you can lose your salvation when they cling to other false teaching. It is simply that they don't want to live in that insecure state. Think of it. The person who lives with eternal security, who rests in Jesus, is the one who acknowledges the greatness of God. Not some sort of momentary experience where he launched himself up out of total depravity, out of his deadness in trespasses and sins, and had the ability to make himself right with God by filling in the gap that Jesus didn't fill. Did we not just sing about his purchase? about his ransom? Did we not just thank him for doing that? Do we believe that he actually purchased people on the cross? Is that what we believe? Or do we believe that he gave some sort of potential offering for those who would be willing to choose it in their dead state? No. 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 He's great. The Father is great. He determined what would happen, and Jesus accomplished it. He accomplished our redemption and he did so because the father as he says is greater than all no one can take you from his hand john 6 37 all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me i will never cast out why because the father is great he keeps his sheep you remember from John 17, 9, I'm praying for them. That's who Jesus says I'm praying for. It's his high priestly prayer. He prays to the Father. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Why? Why would he pray for the world? I pray for them, not the world, but for those whom you have given me. Clear? I mean, could it be more Clear? praying for those that you've given me, for they are yours. They are yours in eternity past. He possesses them in eternity past. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. As you know, in verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one, and I shared with you last time that the term one here in Greek is the term hen, and it is neuter in gender. It is not masculine, nor is it feminine. If it were masculine, then this would be an effort to explain that they are the same person. The father, pater, is masculine. Hen is not masculine here, it's neuter, which simply means that he's making no case for the father and the son being same, the same persons, but they are one in essence. And you wonder, how can this be? Well, read the book of John. Read how frequently Jesus points to his deity. And if you forget everything else, remember this. He says to the Pharisees that unless you believe that ego me, Yahweh, unless you believe that I am he, you will what? Die in your sins. You will die in your sins. So this, this, as I said, it's not the best passage to turn to as a primary focus if you want to persuade someone from Scripture of Jesus' deity. It is the best passage, perhaps, to turn to help someone see the works of Jesus, that they are from the Father and that he does them. John declares in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That ought to be enough. That ought to be enough for people to see, not understand, but to see, right? To visualize, to recognize that Jesus is proclaiming oneness with the Father, that Jesus is declaring his deity. Two persons, one God. And ultimately, as you know, three persons, because God the Spirit also is equally God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are told that the Father sent the Son, He pre existed, He lived in heaven for eternity past. The three persons of the Trinity are God in eternity past. And I did not say that someone ought to be able to read this and understand it. And I'm talking specifically about the unbeliever. But he ought to be able to say, man, that's, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. Because I'm one person, I'm not three persons. So the problem is that the unbeliever can only take his own ontology, and superimpose it upon everything that he reads, his own nature, his own understanding of life, if I could say it that way. He takes that and he attempts to superimpose it on everything he reads about God. And so he restricts God to his own nature. And he is unable, according to 1 Corinthians 2. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. And so the natural man, who also is a false convert, will be guilty in a different way. He will embrace so much of what the Bible says, and when it comes to the hard sayings, he'll run, proving himself to be a false disciple, but intending to persuade people to believe that he is a true disciple, and that's what false disciples do. This is one among a number of theologies where the false convert will do that. He will cling to some... Elements of the truth of God because he loves to beat people over the head with them. But with this one, he can't do it because he's completely unable. Well, I won't go into all the detail about the deity of Jesus. We did that last time. But just suffice it to say that the oneness of the essence of the Father and the Son is his purpose here. The oneness of the essence as displayed in the works not so much in the ontology, in the, the presence of the Father and the Son, but in the works that the Son does on the Father's behalf, displaying that oneness. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Some of you will remember that I spent a significant amount of time grappling on a Facebook page where a former professor of the Master's University for 23 years who has abandoned the faith is attempting to persuade people to believe that Jesus is not God. My conclusion is as Proverbs 9 commands, you must at some point refuse to correct the scoffer. And I don't think it's right for us to just call people scoffers because they disagree with us. But when a person scoffs over and over and over at the simple teaching of God's word, it no longer makes sense. In fact, the proverb promises you that you will bring insult and anger upon yourself when you attempt to continue to correct the scoffer. The way Jesus says it is, do not give what is holy to dogs. Now, I don't recommend that you call people that you disagree with dogs, but I would recommend that you think as Jesus thinks, that you have but one window of opportunity in this lifetime, invested in people who will listen, right? That's the command of Peter. I'm not saying dismiss people as if they're not important. Please don't do that. But Spend your time investing in people who want to have a serious, honest conversation. That's evangelism. Evangelism is, not, evangelism is not screaming at people through a bullhorn who hate you and curse at you. And then you walk away saying, well, you know, blessed are those who are persecuted. That's ridiculous. It's a waste of your time and their time, and it does nothing for the kingdom in a positive way. Evangelism is being the kind of person whose life displays the holiness of God. And I didn't say self-righteousness. The righteousness of Christ to which none of us are perfectly devoted. But if we're in Christ, we're faithfully devoted to that. And when we fail, we draw attention to it. That disarms the person who would attempt to use that against us. We don't do it simply for that sake. We do it because it's right to declare where we have deviated from that which glorifies God. Evangelism calls attention to our own sin as well as the sin of the unredeemed sinner that we might have the privilege, as Peter says, to give a defense for the hope that is in us to everyone that we beat with a spiritual baseball bat, right? No, to everyone who asks, Why in the world would they ask? We ourselves are not displaying the kindness of the Lord. Well, Jesus obviously drew unto himself those who were willing to ask, but also those who were willing to kill him. He's polarizing. The Jews picked up stones now for the fourth time to kill him. And yet there would be those who would be persuaded. The Jews knew he was displaying and declaring his deity, as did Thomas. And I told you from John 20 last time that Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus in no way refuted that declaration. He received it. He capitalized on it. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so at this point, Jesus is pointing out the reality that Thomas needed additional works. He needed additional experience, and that was a display of his weakness for him to come to the place where he would legitimately profess the deity of Jesus. He needed to touch Jesus physically you don't have that prerogative, nor do you have the ability to give someone that experience. So for you and I, when we attempt to faithfully display, really communicate the oneness of the Father and the Son, it is incumbent upon us to call attention to the works as recorded in Scripture. Those works will inevitably result in a work in your life that is inarguable. People will see the change. People will see the difference. Many of you, many of you have said personally to me, after sitting under sound teaching for nine months, 15 months, people started to notice. My marriage started to change. My devotion to the workplace started to change. That's a credit to the Lord and the perfection of his word. Let me just be real clear. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to be faithful to Scripture. It takes faithfulness to be faithful to Scripture. And so the preacher who simply does his job, he's committed to the ministry of the word and prayer. God's going to use him. People's lives will change. One of two things will happen. There will either be a passionate reception of the inerrant, eternal truth of God's word, or there will be a systematic rejection of it. Now that will manifest itself in different ways. There will be those who will say, I'm not going back there. And then there will be those who will kind of hang around for a while and pick and choose what they believe and attempt to poison those who believe it all. You can be certain of that because Scripture promises us that. There will be tares among the wheat. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there will be factions among us. What's the purpose? What's the sovereignly, eternally decreed purpose of those factions? It is that those who are approved, Paul says, would be known. That those who are truly in... The faith would be known against the backdrop of those who are not in the faith. Think of it. If you've ever played on a sports team, the worst guy on the team made the rest of you think you were pretty good. Same in a band or a singing group. Well, I'm not as bad as, you know, him because, you know, when he sings, I want to die, right? The reality of the true believer is practically revealed when he stands in juxtaposition to the false convert. We need that. You wonder what's the purpose for those who are unregenerate who continue to hang around? That's the purpose. That's the purpose. Praise God for that. And praise God that in many cases we've seen the Lord save that person. Have we not? And many of you could list as many as 12 names of people the Lord has saved after years of slumping in the chair growing cold-hearted, rolling their eyes toward the Scripture, becoming increasingly angry against the Word of God. And one day, the softness of heart reveals itself in a willingness to actually sacrifice, to actually start investing in other people. Thomas needed a little help. The people that you love need a little help. But you're not going to be able to walk them to the physical person of Jesus and put their fingers in the hole in his side. But what you can do is know the Scripture and know it well and teach what it says about his works and you can remind them of the miraculous deeds, the signs that he did, to which he pointed and proclaimed, if you don't believe me, believe them. Now those works are not going to to happen again in our day, and the kind of works, the type of works, the style of works, the miraculous works are not happening today. So what are they drawn by? They're drawn by the reality in your life that displays the magnificence of those works in the New Testament. That's what they're drawn by. That's your tool. What are you doing with that right now? For those who need to see you trusting in and professing the name of the Lord. Now's your best time. If life is as hard as it's ever been, now's the best opportunity. It's the absolute best scenario in which you can profess and effectively proclaim the realities of the works of Jesus, which is what he uses to prove his deity and his oneness with the Father. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. First of all, he's not saying that men possess deity. He by no means is saying that men are of any type of deity, nor angels. Men are not gods. They do not possess some form of a lesser deity or an other deity. Exodus 8 verse 10 says, There is no one like the Lord our God. There's no one like him. So as A.W. Tozer has said, he is other than we. But let me just tell you, a massive percentage of the problems that man has in his unwillingness and inability to trust the Lord comes out of a lack of recognition of that truth. He wants the God of his own making. He wants a God that suits his own philosophy. He wants to bend that and mold that God into that which his unbiblical worldview fits. That's the problem. Honestly, that's also the problem with a lot of believers. I'd say every young believer, right, So much of what happens in the teaching of a young believer is the undoing of what he had thought. You've heard me say, I like to call it spiritual detoxification. You're unlearning so much. And if you grew up in a a church that was not at all faithful to Scripture like I did, you've got a lot to unlearn. So that detoxification is necessary. How does that work? It's, It's really two things. One, you're embracing Scripture. Two, you're rejecting bad theology as you go. Your willingness to say, wow, this is a hard saying, but I, I want to I be right about this. I want to honor the Lord about this. I don't want to oversimplify this. I don't want to pit Scripture against Scripture. I don't want to confuse people. I don't want to be a problem. I want to be helpful to people for them to understand and embrace and be moved by the greater and harder truths. Deuteronomy 4.35 says, The Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. Verse 39 says, The Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Deuteronomy 32.39, See now that I am he and there is no God besides me. Hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy 6.4, The Lord is our God. The Lord is one 2nd Samuel 7:22 You are great, O Lord, for there is none like you, and there is no god besides you. For who is God besides the Lord? 2nd Samuel 22:32 And who is a rock besides our God? 1 Kings 8:60 The Lord is God; there is no one else. 2nd Kings 19:15 You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. First Chronicles 17, 20, O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. Nehemiah 9.6, You are the Lord, you alone. Psalm 18.31, For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? You alone, Lord, are God. Isaiah 37.20, Isaiah 43.10, Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Isaiah forty four, six, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Isaiah forty-four, eight, is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. Isaiah forty five, five, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah forty-five, fourteen, surely God is with you, and there is none else, no other God. Isaiah forty-five, eighteen, I am the Lord, and there is none else. Isaiah forty-five, twenty-one is It not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Isaiah 46, 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Zechariah 14, 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. The foremost is here, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And Jesus affirms this in Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See how important this doctrine is? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. See, if you don't get the oneness of God right, the unity of the Godhead, unlike the oneness of the Pentecostal movement, modalism, if you don't get the unity of the Godhead, the three persons who are one God, if you don't get that right, then you don't have the basis upon which to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You might have wondered in your lifetime, why is it I can't get any spiritual traction? Why is it that I can't like other people in my life who seem to be maturing? Why can't I do that? It might be because you have wrong thoughts about the person of God. There's no commandment greater than these, the second commandment being you shall love your neighbor as yourself you won't love your neighbor rightly and you won't love God rightly unless you think rightly about God. This is a fundamental and important doctrine. Jesus is not saying that men are actual gods. So here in verse 34, when he says, is it not written in your law, I say you are gods, what he is not saying is that men are of some form of deity, a lesser deity or another type of deity. He's making a point. He's making a point by appealing to their devotion to the law of God. Their misguided, pick-and-choose, convenience-based, legalistic, abusive, burden-pushing devotion to the law of God. Nonetheless, that devotion is what he appeals to. In verse 35... He says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Again, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came is a reference to Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Say, Law? Whoever he's talking to, and we don't know, is it the rulers of Israel? Is it angelic beings? Is it Israel as a whole? Scripture does not expose that for us. But what we do know that whoever it is to whom he is speaking, they're abusing their ability to display the character of God. They're abusing their power in people's lives. Give justice, verse 3 says, to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. This is the role of a pastor. This is the role of a faithful spiritual leader, the person who displays and possesses that ability to exercise influence on others. What he ought to be doing is is thinking about and ministering to the fatherless. Verse 6, I said you are God's. There's a call upon the lives of, again, whoever he's speaking to. And you can apply this to your life. There's a call upon your life to rightly exercise your spiritual ability. And this is a practical moment in which you and I ought to be thinking about our lives in that regard. To what extent have we been faithful with the stewardship of our own lives? Have we gotten sidetracked with our job or with some other pursuit in life that's prevented us from being most effective in helping the downtrodden such that the Lord might sarcastically say to you or to me, but I said you are gods. I think the idea here is that there are those who act like gods and prove they're not. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. <laughs> the end is coming. You'll fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. The psalmist turns to the one true God. Arise, O God, in the midst of false gods, in the midst of those who act like they think they are gods, and yet display their irresponsibility in the lives of other people. But Jesus uses this Old Testament, this reference from the Psalms to appeal to the Jewish leaders really to call attention to their misguided, abusive, legalistic, burden-pushing devotion to the law of God. He calls upon their worldview. He calls upon their spiritual system. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came. So what he's doing here is exposing this distorted view of the law of God. That's what he's doing. He's calling attention to their problem with the word of God. If God makes use of a phrase that refers to men as gods, why would you have a problem if I'm calling myself the Son of God. Why could that possibly be an issue to you? Because that was their problem. They were declaring blasphemy of him because of his willingness to display the fact that he is the Son of God. So again, Jesus is appealing to their devotion, whatever that devotion is. He's appealing to that devotion to the law of God to say, well, look, look what the law of God says. If you don't have a problem with that, why would you have a problem with me being called the Son of God? In John 15, 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now stop for a minute and think about you. Think about your devotion to the law of God. Do you believe that? You believe that? You believe, as it is said the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled that they hated me without a cause. Do you believe that that was established by the Lord as a sovereign decree that there would be people who would hate Jesus without cause? You okay with that? Because it is at this point where there is a fork in the road and there will be those who will take the path that says that can't possibly be true. And so he or she will take other passages from Scripture and attempt to dispute that. Let's look at this in context. Verse 18 of John 15, go back. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Okay? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See that? Those whom God has chosen out of the world, those whom God chose in eternity past, will be hated by the world. And those who are not hated by the world must ask the question, why? How is it that I fit in so easily and so well in the world that the world has no hatred for me? That's different from respect, right? The man who is qualified to be an elder is respected in the world. And yet, somehow, at the same time, he is hated by the world. Verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Make sense? The person who faithfully proclaims the word of God, it can be said about him that those who hold to his word, Is simply holding to God's word. But those who hear him proclaim God's word and reject that word are showing that they reject God's word. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. It was written before it happened. Luke twenty four forty four. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus here with the Jews is pointing to the veracity of Scripture. Mark 7:5. the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? For them it was all about tradition as it is in the Roman Catholic Church today. And he said to them well did isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men you leave the commandment of god and hold to the tradition of men this is about the word of god and this again this ought to be penetrating to you and me we ought to be asking the question do i just come to listen to the teaching or do i leave here with a passion for doing the word of God. His point is the veracity of the law of God. Again, verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, this is a parenthetical phrase that he throws in there to point out why he's even bringing it up. Let's look at it again. If he called them gods to whomever the word of God came, deal with it, right? Deal with what the word of God says. Don't dismiss it. Don't be afraid to deal with this phrase when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door. You ought to be ready with that. Be prepared to give a defense for those who ask. Now, most Jehovah's Witnesses are not at your door to ask anything. But who knows what the Lord might be doing in that person's heart the moment he puts his foot on your doorstep. You and I ought to be ready with this passage. We ought not to run from it, you know. Don't throw a blanket over this passage because you can't deal with it. Deal with it. Deal with it because you can if you're in Christ. You're not the natural man. You're the spiritual man who appraises all things. Wrestle with it. Enjoy the process. Do it with other people who are faithful to do the same. John 17, 17 is where Jesus really lays it down in his high priestly prayer. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth as you sent me into the world so i have sent them into the world and for their sake i consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth that's what ought to be happening in your life every day there ought to be a cleansing effect of dealing with the word of god not just reading it it's a joy for me nearly every day I walk into our living room and there are three boys sitting there with my wife reading their bibles that's what they do from 7 to seven thirty, and then it's breakfast and then our family devotions i can't legislate that i mean I, obviously they're they're young yet and i can say this is what you're going to do but we don't tell them to do that anymore they do that and what's happening is they're happening is they're establishing a repository of truth that one day the Lord would use to bring about sanctification. And sometimes I wonder if he's not already doing that right now, in the moment when there's a willingness to confess sin, rather than be so focused on everybody else's sin, but to expose one's own sin. That's sanctification. That's the sanctifying work that Jesus prays for. And what does he do in order for that to happen? He consecrates himself. He fasts. He prays, he goes without, he disciplines himself. And you and I as Americans know very little of that. You know, we want entitlement. We want to be served. We want the better job. We want the better marriage. We want the better car. It ought to be about me being blessed like the guy I talked to you about last week who was not satisfied being blind for 14 years but it manipulated all kinds of circumstances. And at the point where God blessed him with the reestablishment of his sight, rather than saying, Wow, isn't this great? It's an illustration of God granting sight to those who are spiritually blind. He says, I told you so. I told you so. God still gives people their dreams. And think of the person who thinks that his dream is the issue. Think of the person who's set his sights on the fulfillment of his dreams. What he ought to be doing is setting his sights on his humility, that Lord, if you would never fulfill anything I ever desired, then I am blessed of all men to be a messenger of truth, the life-saving eternal truth of the power of the gospel, to grant forgiveness of sins, victory over that sin in the resurrection. Again, what about you and me? Are we so focused on the earthly issues in? our lives, that if something were to dent that, if something were to slow that down, if something were to cause it to be stopped dead in its tracks? What about a child with a disability? What about the death of a child? My my wife and I have been through that twice. What about the termination of your marriage when as far as you know you've been faithful? Does that somehow eliminate your ability to proclaim the greatness of God no because those details as painful and truly difficult as they are they are opportunities for you to display the greatness of god that is displayed in the works that jesus did and the work that he's currently doing in you if in fact that's going on how does that work it's the word of god it's the purifying reality Of the Word of God. Somebody said to me recently about a man I've known for a long time. I'm thankful for him because he's washing his wife with the water of the Word. (laughs) You want to be a faithful man, be the man who would be useful in your wife's life, and if you're not married, in the lives of those around you, that they would be cleansed by your emanation of the Word of God, your proclamation your trust, your willingness to remember and recite scripture in the moment not for the purpose of using it against other people but for the purpose of declaring God's greatness and encouraging others to rest in his greatness. That's the sanctifying work of the word of God. Verse 37 in our text, if I'm not doing the works of my father then do not believe me, right? That's some real security in the reality of what's been going on. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then game off. Don't believe me. And, and listen, in the same way, you and I ought to be willing to say the same thing. If my life is not legit, please don't look to me as an example. Please. There was a time in my life when I had to come to grips with that and tell people that. But that ought not to last. There's no excuse for uh, stagnating in that condition. Jesus can say that with full confidence because, of course, it was not true about him that he was not doing the works of his Father. He says, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Open your eyes. Look at the reality. So much going on in our nation that well illustrates this. Look at all that's happening by which the Lord is blessing our country and people will still say, nah. But every one of us, because we're Americans, knows what's going on. So many people will look at the reality and say, "Now, that's what the Jews did. If you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me. Believe that the man who was born blind, without eyes, now sees. Stop rejecting that. Believe that I caused H2O to become the purest and best and the richest wine ever known to mankind. Believe it, because you know it happened. Believe these things the next chapter believe i took a dead man and i made him alive believe that if you don't believe me if you don't think my words are credible my style my delivery my presence I'm not dynamic enough in the pulpit for you believe my works believe my works if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to place to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. You remember from John 1, 19, this is the testimony of John, When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And this is where we really get down to the message of this message. I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Beloved, that's you. You're not a prophet. But you're a messenger. Do you not live in the wilderness? You do. You know that. And this is how your life ought to be marked out. That's what John said about himself. You remember the thing that John the Apostle said about himself? The one whom Jesus loved. You ever forget that? You ever get so wrapped up in who you are other than that that you lose sight of anything that might motivate you to keep persevering? That's what you ought to remember. That's what John remembered about himself. That's what here... John the Baptist really focused on. It's that about who the Lord was and what he did and what was important to him. He says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you genuinely are submissive to, committed to, devoted to the word of God. Your sins have been taken away, and your life is the work of that evidence. And that's what the Lord uses in you. John could credibly say, Behold the Lamb of God to a massive number of people who were waiting for the Lamb of God, sort of. Right? They were waiting for that Maccabean Judas the hammer, type of guy to come and militaristically overtake Rome, who somehow at the same time would be the apex of the sacrificial system. So they at least knew enough about the sacrificial system to know that John was saying the Messiah is here. And John had the credibility to say that because there was nothing about John in John. John was not committed to John's exaltation Or even his recognition, or even his memory. John was committed to pointing to the Lamb of God. And the result, verse 41 many came to him and they said, John did no sign. Now, why would John do no sign? Couldn't John have done signs? Well, John wasn't an apostle. That was one of the marks of the true apostles. That's one way we know we don't have true apostles today. They're not those performing miracles today. There are those who proclaim to perform miracles and they profess to be apostles, but the fact that their works are false, that they're shysters, they're hucksters, proves their false apostolic disposition. They said John did no sign, but but everything that John said about this man was true. So John understood his role. John 1:8 says he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. John 1:26 John answered them I baptize with water but among you stands one who you do not know and I'm not worthy to untie his sandal. John 3:30 he must increase but I must decrease. How do you respond when those circumstances come into your life that might decrease you? Do you rebel? It's not fair how you respond or you just say this is good this is good because I'm decreasing and I have the opportunity to display his increase many believed in him there many believed in him via the works the message that came through John the Baptist many believed there So, what must you and I do in response to this? Our message is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Look with me at Acts 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So Here's a moment of opposition. Here's a moment in which Paul had thought, you know, I've been faithful because he had been faithful and he might have thought, why is all this happening to me when I've been faithful? I'm not saying Paul thought that. I'm saying that he might have and that we often do. They were filled with jealousy. Verse 46, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of the word of God, unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. See, that's the right response, to hear the word of the Lord and rejoice over the word of the Lord. He says then, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This ought to motivate you and me to rest in the greatness of God, to communicate his word, to submit humbly to his word, and to know that he will, in fact, use his word to glorify himself and to save everyone, every single person who has been appointed unto eternal life. In Acts 16, 31... Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his, in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with the entire household that he had believed in God. That's a jailer whose life was a wretched existence. God saved him, saved his household. Why? How? By the power of the word of God, and he rejoiced in the word of the Lord. So you and I today, how do we respond to this? We respond by telling people, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, John three thirty six. John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The works that Jesus did on behalf of the Father that draw attention to the word of God. Praise God for your faithfulness Praise God that He's given you a love for His Word. And when you're convinced that you've fallen short, then grab your Bible and open it and read. Plead with God to give you understanding with sound teaching, with sound counsel, by surrounding yourself with people who genuinely love God and love His Word, that you might have the credibility to tell people to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Father, we we give you feeble but heartfelt thanks for the perfection of your word. Lord, we long to be faithful to you as we look into your word, that we would be bold yet not reprehensible in our conduct, that we would be confident and yet not unnecessarily offensive that we in our hearts and our lives would be rooted in the truth the truth would be rooted in us that as we spend time in the bible that the bible would be in us so that in any and every opportunity we would be quick and willing and exuberantly interested in sharing the truth of the kindness that you and the son possess that your works displayed in a poor, wretched, blind man who had never seen, that those works displayed your glory because even as Jesus said, the purpose for his blindness was that your works would be on display. Lord, may the work of the death and the resurrection of Christ, that work, that sign, may those works Be evident in our lives as we are refined, as we are molded, as we are sanctified unto the image of Jesus, regardless of the circumstances. And we pray these things, that you would establish them more fully in us, that those who are without Christ, whom we know and love, and those that we don't yet know but hope to love, would be restored unto you that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have eternal life. We ask this in his name. Amen.